There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. This week, we are delighted to welcome Michael Novak, the Artistic Director-Designate of the Paul Taylor Dance Foundation. Raised in Illinois, Mr. Novak began studying dance at the age of 10. In 2001, he was offered a presidential scholarship to attend the University of the Arts in Philadelphia to pursue training in jazz and ballet. The following year, he undertook an apprenticeship at the Pennsylvania Academy of Ballet Society, where he remained until 2004. After moving to New York City, Michael was admitted to Columbia University's School of General Studies, where he was awarded scholarships for academic excellence. After being a freelance dancer in New York City for many years, Michael joined the Paul Taylor Dance Company in 2010. This past May, Paul Taylor chose Michael as a successor, naming him Artistic Director-Designate of the Paul Taylor Dance Foundation. Michael is 35 years old and will continue on with the company as a dancer. Today, we talk with Michael about what brought him to dance, finding Paul Taylor and his choreography, and what has happened since Paul called him in March with some big news. Thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. We really appreciate that you could fit us into uh, what is a very busy schedule. Um, So we really appreciate having you on the show today. Of course. Thank you. So we just want to start at the beginning with your, um, <laughs> the way you started with ballet, just how our dance, how you got interested in it and how you started and tell us all about it. <laughs> um, so when I was a kid, um, my mom and dad were uh, very determined to make sure that I had an after school activity that I, you know, would participate in. And I, tried a number of sports um and i failed at most of them relatively (laughs) i succeeded at failing you might say um and um we had just recently moved to a new house and there was a dance studio that was about 15 minutes away um and it was a it it was a competition dance uh school that was there and i I kind of remember just driving by and being like, well, 
nothing else has really gone well mm-hmm. um, <laughs> while I tried dancing. Um, so I started with jazz and tap. Um, and I definitely liked it. Um, I liked that it was like a community of people and it was team driven, but there weren't like, it was not an actual sport you might say. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and that it was, it was, it was a physical opportunity to be active and to move. Um, and I love dancing to music. Um, and so I was enjoying it for probably from the ages of 10 until 12 or so. And then when I was in junior high, I started to get a really severe stutter. And um, it got to the point where I wasn't able to actually talk. And then in an attempt to try to talk, I got so overwhelmed that I just actually just gave up. Um, And dance class became kind of the way for me to get everything out, all of the frustrations that I was having. Um, it was a way for me to express what I was actually going through, um, without having to worry about talking. Um, so dance kind of became this form of therapy. Um, and as I went into intensive speech therapy and I regained my ability to, uh, learn fluency exercises to talk, I just kept dancing more and more and more. Um, and I worked my way into musical theater and I was doing mostly jazz, tap, some hip hop. Um, and I really didn't do any ballet until I did West Side Story my senior year in high school. And I was cast as Dream Tony. Um, <laughs> and this is where I start to enter your world a little bit. And um, I, ballet was just this aesthetic um, that I just had never really been exposed to before. And I just, I fell in love with it. And while I loved musical theater and jazz and tap, um, ballet offered me this precision and this discipline um, and this way of moving that I had never had prior to doing West Side Story, and I fell in love with ballet. Um, so I decided to go to University of the Arts, which is in Philadelphia, and I got a full ride. And I went there to go study jazz, and I got to University of the Arts, and I realized very quickly that my ballet training was nowhere near where it should have been. (laughs) Um, And my jazz and tap were great. um, But I knew if I wanted to be a a successful dancer that I would need to get my ballet training to a level that I thought was standard for any 18 or 19 year old. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I actually left the University of the Arts and I went to the Pennsylvania Academy of Ballet which is in Narberth, mm-hmm. which is a Russian ballet. Uh, pro- it's a Russian ballet program there. Um, so I did strict Vaganova syllabus for two years mm-hmm. um, to try to get my ballet training um, kind of to match my jazz and tap. And what ended up happening is I did so much ballet um, so late that I had been dealing with shin splints for a long time. Um, I ended up getting stress fractures in both shins. And while I loved, I loved ballet. Um, it just wasn't right for my body type. Yeah. It was too much. And so I was kind of in this weird position where I was like, okay, so jazz and musical theater, I love how fun and theatrical it is. Um, and then I, 
but it's not, it doesn't really have the technique and the style and nuance that ballet has. And while ballet has all those things, the body type just was just working against me. Um, so I was kind of in this place where I was like, I give up, I'm done. Um, and I actually quit dancing. Um, yeah. And, um, I went to Columbia university in New York city, um, went to the school of general studies. Um, and through the Barnard dance program, um, I kind of, I started dancing again. Um, and when my, and my plan when I went to Columbia actually was to go to get my, um, I would obviously get my undergrad, but then I was going to get my graduate degree in arts administration after that. Um, but while I was at Barnard, I started dancing again and I started doing a lot more modern dance and the chair woman of the Barnard dance program was a Paul Taylor alumna. And she said, you know, I actually think Paul would like you. Um, and I knew who Paul Taylor was and I had seen the company, but I never really thought of modern dance because back in my bunhead days, I was so determined, you know, to like work in my ballet technique. And, right. um, so then I started taking classes at the Paul Taylor school. And I remember taking my first class and being like, this feels like this is it, but I don't want to get too excited. <laughs> um, but I, I, but I, but I think I found my home. Right. Um, like this is how I meant to move. Right. Um, and this is the technique. It has the, it has the physicality and the athleticism that I was looking for. Um, the, emotional range of the work was vast, you know, so there were funny pieces and dark pieces. Um, so I started taking classes at the Paul Taylor school, um, went to the summer intensive, uh, went to my first audition and I made it to the end, but I didn't get hired. Um, and then at that point I had, I was probably, this was 2010. So I was 28 and, um, he was having one more audition i had graduated columbia i had student loans i was working a bunch of jobs and like and i was like this is it like it's either happening now at 28 or else i have to figure out what i'm going to do mm -hmm. and um i went to that audition and i got the job um Aww. and then i got a phone call to have a meeting with him <laughs> at the end of March. Well, we definitely want to get to that for sure. <laughs> we definitely want to hear about that because that's insane that that was only eight years ago that you got that job. And you are where you are now. And you are yeah. where you are now. And we'll get there. But I find it really yeah. interesting when you're talking about being a jazz dancer and a tap dancer, finding um, an interest in the structure of ballet. I feel like it's quite often the opposite that dancers don't like the structure of ballet. So they kind of go into that jazz arena. Do you feel like that interest in structure is something that helped you with your professional career? I would say definitely. Um, I think that there is so much, <laughs> it's so funny, but one of the things I talk about a lot when I work with, with, students is that you know the ability to weight transfer is a very fundamental yeah um it, it's it's actually like it's a it's a very simple thing but it's very very hard and i think ballet was really the first time that anyone took the time to explain to me how to move from two feet to one foot and or from two feet to two feet you know and really took the time to break it down mm -hmm. whereas i felt like in jazz and tap it was kind of just feel your way through it you know mm -hmm. and like have some pizzazz you know and it didn't 
I, I didn't really have this, that kind of structure. And when ballet gave that to me, um, I felt my body change. I felt how I related to weight, um, in terms of how, in terms of how to be light, um, which helped me greatly when I went into modern dance and then I had to use my weight. Right. Um, and the ability to like, how do you create this sense of being up in the air and light and then get really down and low to the earth. Um, so I definitely think that without my ballet background, I don't think I would have been able to do modern dance at all. Mm. Um, for me, um, you know, I, I think it's so, I, I still can't believe that, uh, you were able to begin a career at, at 28. That's something that's so unfathomable to, uh, most ballet dancers. And, um, oh, yeah. that's, but that's, I think, so wonderful that you are able to go in to a career as a fully formed adult. Um, yeah. How do you think that that made the initial years working under Paul different from, say, if you had been an 18 year old apprentice somewhere? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that was great about starting my career at 28 is that I had been freelancing for almost a decade. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, <laughs> that entrepreneurial spirit to make it work um, definitely informed um, who I am as a person and how I like to work and how to take care of myself. Um there are so many skill sets that I learned within the actual world of just managing multiple jobs that, you know, might not necessarily translate to discipline in the studio directly. But I think um, that kind of focus, that kind of professionalism, that kind of we are going to make it work. If you've been through all of this, you can get through the next hour of a rough creative period, you know, right. um, that you that you can get through this and you can make it happen um and it gave me a sense of confidence about who i was as an artist and who i wasn't and i think one of the great things about modern dance and i think about um paul taylor's company specifically is that dancers perform well into their late in into their late 30s and early to mid 40s mm -hmm. and um I remember we were out on tour and we were we were with the ballet company because we were sharing at a festival and one of the dancers we were talking to was I think he was around 30 and he was like I feel like I'm just starting to uncover things in my artistry that have artistic weight and yet in the tenure of the company I am the oldest and I'm on the way out yeah. um and he was wrestling with this feeling because like because again like I'm 31 and I've been here for two or right. three years, you know? <laughs> so you were just talking about, you know, how modern dance looks at age and craft, um, and how the life experiences that you live can actually translate to what you produce when you're doing roles, right. um, and how ballet has a different focus, you know? Um, and what, and what that means that it is something that I think, you know, both our industries are, wrestling with and i think ballet is right. doing a great job actually especially in the past decade or two in terms of celebrating the maturity of artists mm -hmm. i think it's i do think it's getting better and i see little things here and there um a, a friend of mine is a 35 year old soloist with the new york city ballet and she just had her premiere in the uh potata of concerto barocco which oh wow that's just pretty unheard of you don't 
I mean, I think it's getting better, like I'm saying. But, uh, you know, 10 years ago, I don't know that an- anyone would have been interested in seeing someone try something so important at such a late period in their career. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So. Well, and I think that's interesting, too, because we... Like in Valley, for example, we watch something like Romeo and Juliet and we're like, well, they're not mature enough to have that kind of love connection. But that's the kind of dancers people want to see are like young dancers, you know, and then when people are more mature, they're like, well, that's an old dancer. It's like, no, you want to see the mature dancer. And with that comes, you know, a difference in the dancing as well. But it has to be appreciated that the years of experience, you know. So speaking about veterans, um, uh, the Paul Taylor company has less turnover than most companies. So there are a lot of veterans who've been working with Paul for many, many years. Did you find that intimidating when you joined the company originally? Um, I didn't find it intimidating. I actually was, I was, I was really grateful for the opportunity because a lot of, um, a lot of the companies and choreographers that I had worked with had not been around for 64 years, you know? And I think (laughs) one of the things that I was so excited about, um, was the, the access to the other dancers who've been with him since the fifties and the sixties and the seventies, um, to, to know, what their relationship to him was to what their relationship was to the work. Um, I just feel like I got into this library and there was all of, and there were all of these books, you know, like here's how you can approach, you know, your artistic growth. Um, and I just, I felt like it was this cornucopia of, um, you could almost say like mentors mm-hmm. um, who would be there to kind of give me the insights that I um, would want as I would grow into the Paul Taylor canon. Um, in terms of intimidation, I don't think I was really intimidated by um, most of my colleagues. I was, I certainly looked up to all of them. <laughs> um, but I think the first time I worked with Mr. Taylor was probably the most intimidating because I didn't know what that experience was going to be like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just kept watching him and watching everyone else, you know, to kind of get a cue of what the, what is the social scene here, mm-hmm. you know, and how do the dancers read him and how, and what does he tell them and do they do exactly what he says or do they deviate a little bit? Like how much of themselves do they bring right. forward or do they do exactly what he wants them to do? Um, so I just kind of, I tried to, I don't want to say hide, but I just observed heavily um, for the first couple years. Again, I feel like that's something that being 28, um, you know, you would just have a, a better sense of how to, conduct yourself in that way like totally i mean when you're 18 and you're just panicked you don't even know to observe (laughs) yeah when you're 18 you don't even know to really observe i mean you are but you're not like oh let me sit back and take this in for a second let's try and stay out of everyone's way right yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. not make a fuss (laughs) um so the company tour oh sorry go ahead yeah no um i was just gonna say the other i i think the other thing that was intimidating was the amount of work that we do um and how quickly we put things together. I think I had never, I had never learned things off a of video and I had never had access to like an archive, um, where there's videos of dances going back to the seventies, you know, and it's which, which one do you learn from? Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you have to know it by Tuesday. Right. Yeah. And this other dance by Tuesday and this other dance by Tuesday. You know, I had never dealt with that much volume. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, what? what's interesting to me, since you had brought up how injured you were uh, in those years where you were really trying to uh, hone your your craft as a ballet dancer, um, Paul Taylor's works are extremely physically demanding and you, you guys are out there all the time because it's a relatively small company and you're, you know, you'll be out there for three works in a night. How did your body respond to that in terms of, um, injuries and overall health? Um, I would say it responded the best out of everything that I've studied Mm -hmm. prior to Paul Taylor. Um, we do a lot of lifting. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a very heavily, there's a lot of heavy partnering, uh, for the men, Um, so one of the things that I think surprised me over the years is the amount of cross training that I actually do. Um, and depending on the repertory that we're dancing, there are mornings where I will actually go to the gym and I will do a two hour weight training (laughs) program and not do ballet Mm -hmm. because of what I have to do. Right. Right. Um, Oh, that would be like your day off you're saying. That's my day off. Oh, I it's thought like, you were I, saying before I, rehearsals. Oh, like yeah. when I, I like, our, yeah. our faces were just it like, is. What? It is re- yeah. Okay. Yeah, it is before rehearsals. So like oh. weight training is so I would say I weight train probably five to six days a week. Oh, wow. Um and then what I'm about to say is kind of like, I'm so confused. This is so weird, but I probably take an actual full dance class like once a week. Um we're and into that. everything we get else it. is <laughs> yoga, yeah. gyrotonics. Um, and weight training, um, because it conditions my body in the way that I need it to be for the repertoire that we have to actually do. Now it varies like every, I would say every year because our repertory is different, I might tweak my program, um, where I might do more yoga or more gyro. Um, it just depends. Or if it's a very, if it's a repertory with a lot of tech, with a lot of technical works i'll definitely take ballet class more um it just depends on what i need um is that common within the company for people to do that or is that because like you know in ballet it's like sacrilegious to miss class (laughs) well Um, i mean or we know plenty of people that miss class and they sure aren't lifting weights before so (laughs) (laughs) or doing gyro Mr. Taylor's approach is very like, whatever you have to do to get ready at noon, like you it. do. But yeah. at noon, you better be ready to go, right. you know. Um, and I think there's a lot to be said for that. Now, you're also dealing with older artists who know their bodies and they know their repertory. Um, so I think that sh- that freedom to create your own structure is something that is given to artists who are much farther along than you would to like an 18 year old you know yeah Um, that structure yeah yeah so because we have the freedom to figure it out i actually feel like it's allowed me to um grow into the work in a very organic way i think the only i think the only other thing i would actually talk about is the fact that the only way to get conditioned to perform the Taylor work is to do the Taylor work. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that's something that I'm not, I've never danced a Balanchine ballet, but I would assume <laughs> that there are certain works that you just have to do, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, and you can take class and you can run on the treadmill, but until you're actually 
doing the work itself, that is what gets you ready to actually do it. So um, we, we can cross train as much as we want, but it really is, it is within the dances themselves that you get conditioned to do them. Right. If that makes sense. Well, it's like when Michael and I would dance Paul Taylor works, we would take ballet class and that certainly did not condition us for Paul <laughs> Taylor works. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's well, for that sure. Great. Sometimes they had Patrick teach a warm up that was <gasps> oh, a little more um, it felt so good. I appropriate love that. for our yeah. workload that day. Patrick's been on the podcast too. Patrick Corbin. We love him. <laughs> he's been him on there. I love oh yeah he's been on there um he was he's our insight into your world and he always makes yeah. paul taylor work so fun for us and we always had the best time oh, and, and i was actually gonna say that our bodies did not respond to paul taylor works the way yours did but we always had a lot of fun doing them even if it hurt a little bit they're just the hardest yeah. ever so hard mercuric tidings it's- would just destroy oh my, me i saw yes. michael in mercury this year oh did you he did the two boys which i and the oh end how, how tall are you michael i'm five ten. Oh well you look much taller on stage as did your opposite oh, but still five ten yeah. is still tall for those yeah. because we had we'd always have like the little like very short compact boys right. doing executing oh, something that's so yeah. fast and oh insane so um but i, I couldn't imagine i thought you were like six one and i was just like how is he doing this <laughs> i i don't know how i still that so one of our most famous dancers she is like when you watch mercure tidings it's like watching a carriage that is on on fire <laughs> running down a hill like it just keeps getting faster and faster yeah, yeah, and faster yeah. and faster and you're like how what is going to happen oh, um gosh. and you know what that's like you know it's i mean it's a beautiful work but whew, Ah, uh, it's so great. Do you guys do this? I mean, so when Patrick sets them for us, we have the videos of you guys in the different colored mm-hmm. leotards or unitards. Oh, yep. And then we yep. have the Taylor names, which maybe our listeners don't know about. But do you guys do the Taylor names then too? Or is it only when they go and set ballets in other companies? What are the Taylor names? Oh, like, I guess like, not. So it's like we'll have – he'll say everybody's name. So it's like you're Patrick today and then – for everything, he will say, like, Patrick, come over here to the right. Like, when he's reading his notes, <laughs> your name okay. is your Taylor name, like, from that video. Maybe that's just oh, a Patrick wow. thing, though. I thought it was, like, a... That's a Patrick thing. Oh, okay. Um, but but you, you, you definitely get really good at being able to pick people out and learning what alumni, like, yeah. how they move a certain way. And, you know, it, it's... You know, when looking at a dance like Mercuric Tidings, it was choreographed in 1982, you know, we probably have in our archives that I have access to probably 10 to 12 versions of it. Um, and Mercuric Tidings has actually shifted quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. Paul has added dancers. He's taken away dancers. He's changed the music. Mm-hmm. Um, he's changed the costumes. Um, so it's always a fun experience when a dance comes back and you kind of like, okay, so we like what Eileen and Jamie Ray did in 2010, <laughs> but what, you know, Andrew and Patrick did in 1996, we're going to combine those. Right. And you kind of build like a recipe. Right. Um, <laughs> it's fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you were recently appointed artistic director designate for the Paul Taylor Dance Foundation, which is a huge announcement from an organization that protects the legacy of one of today's greatest choreographic geniuses. Is this a position you had ever imagined taking over or did Paul's wish to have you as his heir apparent come as a surprise? I would say both. (laughs) Yes. Is the answer to your question. Um, So 
like I said, when I went into Columbia, um, I, I always kind of had these two aspects to how I like to live. And I'm, I am definitely a type A academic. Um, and then I have this creative artistic side. Um, and I'm very 50-50 in terms of right brain, left brain. And I've always tried to find a way to bring them, you know, together to work. And one of the things that I loved about dancing was that obviously it was very artistic and creative, but I was starting to get to the point where I was like, I still feel like I need something to satisfy this like academic, um, structural side of my life. And, um, so I was trying to figure out, you know, long-term, what am I going to do once I'm done dancing and going to Columbia was part of that was like, if I can go into arts administration maybe that's where I can find this balance um, that I was looking for. So that's always kind of been on the back of my mind um, as a long-term goal. Um, and obviously I put it on the back burner, you might say, um, once I got into Paul Taylor. Um, so it was sitting there and the matter of succession is something that um, I think everyone who's affiliated with the company in some way is is and has been very concerned about, especially after Merce Cunningham passed away and his his company folded. Um, and there's been much anticipation about what is Paul going to do mm-hmm. um, and how is it going to and how is it going to happen. Um, but no one knew that it was a decision that he was going to make now. Right. Um, so the shock of this happening um really was the fact that it happened at all um on top of which the fact that as he told me that he had been giving us a lot of thought and uh he 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 had figured out that i am going to be the one who's going to take over um which is what he told me um it wasn't really a question it i was, was just going to say that sounds like a statement <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was a statement you know which is which is which is so him um, to be like, I'm going to give you this opportunity and I want to see what you do with it. Um, and that's how he works in the dance studio also um, that he'll tend to throw you things and he'll sit back and watch. Um, and he just watches you go for it. Um, so it wasn't out of character in an odd way. Um, I was certainly shocked. I was humbled. Um, I was confused because um, even though I'm starting my ninth year, here um the alumni network is so vast um that i i just look at there's so many dancers who came to this company prior to me who had such an impact and i frankly i was kind of like how did you get to me you know what 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 do i do that's different from everyone else and why do you think that i am the one um it was a very intimidating moment, but it was also really, um, I mean, one of the proudest moments of my life um, to know that he actually trusts me to do it. And that alone is the issue. It's like, that's it. It's because I, because I say that you are, you are, period. And it's like, okay, that's, <laughs> well, you're the boss. It's so interesting because so many in the industry expressed a lot of surprise at your appointment just due to your age, as many artistic uh, leaders are middle-aged or older. So do you think that that's maybe something that he 
especially likes that you are younger, that you're still dancing? And does he feel like that can be a benefit to your career as an artistic director in the future? I think that's part of it. Um, I mean, I really don't, like, I, I would probably have to ask him more specifically um, what mm-hmm. his reasoning was. But it, it was very important to him that I was able to keep performing. Um, that he felt that that was an important balancing act. Um, that I would slowly take on the roles and responsibilities that he thought I was ready for, but that I was also and that I was also a working artist. Um, and that balance is something was. I think it was an important balance mm-hmm. for him. Mm-hmm. So, how are you um, planning to make that transition? how long do you think you will continue to dance while you uh, are also doing your uh, duties as artistic director? I plan to dance as long as possible. I mean, I think it's going obviously in terms of the volume, I'm not going to be able to dance as much as I have been. Um, But that's something that I'm looking forward to figuring out as we go. Mm -hmm. Um, I certainly would hope to dance at least to 40, you know, um, depending on how I feel, um, and depending on, you know, the weight of the roles and responsibilities that, um, I'm going to be having to handle. Mm -hmm. Um, but one of the things I actually am very excited to do is to actually not be on stage and to be out in the house watching. Um, because I feel like I have a really good sense of how the repertory feels and how it looks from backstage. But um, I really haven't seen a lot of the rep from the audience's point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that I'm looking forward to integrating um, going forward is to sit out with the audience, watch the work and watch them watch the work mm-hmm. um, One and thing- learn from that. Yeah. One thing that we have talked about um, a little bit, Michael and I have touched on on the podcast is how a lot of times these transitions um, in the artistic director uh, position happen maybe in times of turmoil or, you know, someone leaves and another person comes in. There's never doesn't always seem to be a kind of communication or kind of like this passing on of knowledge from one generation to the next. So I think that you're in a very unique situation with that. So how maybe already, or how do you anticipate that Paul will be kind of walking you through all of these things and kind of imparting his experience upon you? I mean, the, the very first thing he wants me to start working on is the artistic planning and programming of the company. So, um, in terms of the repertory, in terms of the volume, in terms of creating a season, um, that's where we're going to do most of our work now. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think, I mean, I trust his intuition implicitly and I couldn't agree with him more that having a holistic sense of the repertory and how to make an evening of dance and, um, um. how, to program in a domestic market versus an international market and you know um what are those markets and how are they growing and how are they changing you know and um there's a definitely a lot of homework there (laughs) for (laughs) me to do um and he's also i mean he's he's been managing a company for 64 years so there's i i think there's going to be a lot of things that i can't think of right now that when they come up he's going to have don't do this, do this. <laughs> like I've tried this. Trust me, you know, right, right, right. this, there are reasons why this is the way it is, mm-hmm. you know? Um, 
So I don't know what I don't know, I right. guess is the best thing to say in that regard. It's like but the, I'm sure the president's club. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, won't, you won't know until you know. Um, yeah. There. Uh, how do you think that you're going to find a balance between respecting the tradition of such an iconic repertoire while moving the company into the future? I think one of the ways is actually going back into history and going into our archives. And one of the things I want to do is spend a lot of time looking at the work from the 50s and from the 60s and really getting getting a strong sense of where we've come from. When you look at the modernist manifesto, you know, that was being built in um, in the early half of the 20th century, you know, why are these artists reacting the way that they were? And I think that's something that I want to have a better sense of and so that I can better preserve the integrity of what those artists were trying to do and what they stood for mm -hmm. so that when I do try to contextualize it for a 21st century audience um, that's in a social media digital age, you know, that I can respect the past but I can contextualize it in a way that makes it relevant or makes it at least um, an engaging entry point into the work. Because um, I, yeah, yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So what are your overall goals for the company as artistic director? I'm basically taking my cues for Paul Taylor. Um, so he launched the Paul Taylor American Modern Dance Initiative back in 2014. Mm -hmm. And it presents not only his work, but it also presents the important historical masterworks, you know, of the 20th century, as well as commissioning the new choreographers to come in and work on the company. And um, I love that model. Um, I think there are a number of incredibly important historical modern dance works. Um, that we don't get to see as often as I would like us to. Um, and I think there's an, that, that there's a tremendous opportunity there to help fund the reconstructions and getting some of these older works um, brought to life. Um, but then in terms of the contemporary court, the contemporary voices, you know, I think we're entering a period um, right now where so many companies are having these types of choreographic labs, you know, where there really is this agenda to give the next generation ample studio space and dancers to create work. Right. And that's something that really hasn't existed for quite some time. And I'm really excited to see where that goes. Um, but one of the things that I think makes Paul Taylor's work so amazing were the collaborations that he actually had um, working with Alex Katz and Robert Rauschenberg mm -hmm. and Jennifer Tipton, you know, that it wasn't just the mastery of the choreography. It was the whole package. So one of the things that I'm looking at with these contemporary voices is, you know, it's not just choreographers who have voices, you know, um, there are artists and costume designers and there's a whole host of opportunity there to get minds to get into a room and to make work mm -hmm. um, and to keep the spirit of modernism in the sense that like the modernists were the ones who were rea who were reacting 
against the culture that they were in. You know, they they were the ones who were trying to pioneer a new type of dance. And I, is there a way to really help that and foster that? Right. Um, and what does it look like? That's so great because every choreographer that we talk to, they always go back to this one moment where someone gave them a studio and someone gave them dancers to work with. And then like that was it and that started their whole thing. And if they hadn't had that opportunity and they hadn't had that moment, they wouldn't be where they are today. And it's those sorts of yeah. things are so important for them. And you never know. You never. I mean, if I've learned, I mean, if the retail business taught me anything, it's that you never know who's walking in your store and you never know what they're going to buy, <laughs> you know, and it's. It's, it's kind of, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's actually funny, but it's really true. It's like, you just never know what saying yes to one person or saying yes to a group of people could actually do. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be open to that. Well, I can't wait to see what happens um, under your artistic director direction. Oh. Um, I had the pleasure of seeing you perform this past uh, New York season. Um, and I just... I love the company and I can't wait to see where it goes from here. Oh, thank you so much. We are. I'm at, actually very excited. I'm very excited. I mean, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's like, this is like a total fantasy moment for anyone. To, I, I, <laughs> I mean, I can tell already how much you care for the repertoire and for this legacy and for someone who cares about, a, you know, a different repertoire, the balancing, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, it's just like, that's yeah. a, such like a fantasy moment to just be like, God, what wouldn't I do to, to just like help this come to people's lives in any way possible. And you get to do that for Paul's amazing work. Yeah. So I think that's just wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we're tremendous honor. Uh, yeah. We're at our final um, part of the interview, our lightning round, where we'll just ask you a few quick questions and you can respond okay. with whatever you think of <laughs> okay so uh what is your favorite on stage moment on stage moment was when i danced fibers which is a work by paul taylor that he made in 1961 um and you're in this mask um and it was an incredibly intimidating moment because the mask has your jaw clamped and you really can't actually see that well uh-huh. um and i had to do this really this incredibly hard solo that paul made for himself um not being able to move my jaw and not being able to see. And that was, um, could you breathe? It was an amazing experience. I did. Um, I don't actually know. (laughs) might have been one of those, like, just make it happen. Um, (laughs) but that ability to like, not trust your eyes and trust your body. Wow. Um, was huge. Interesting. Um, what is your dream work to dance? One that you haven't danced yet. Oh my God. I would love, uh, in the Paul Taylor canon. Um, I would, I'd love to dance a piece of his called Scudorama, um, and Oriole, uh, both from the early 1960s in the larger canon though. I would love to dance in Jules. Yes. Yes. Jules is the the best one to say, because then you get three in one, you can do emeralds, rubies and diamonds. I would just, just just once i just want to know what it's like and Aww. yeah but yeah. <laughs> uh is there one of paul's works that you would like to see performed more often oh my god yeah, yes um last look dust um big bertha scudorama i already mentioned um i tend to like his earlier works i tend to like his dark works mm-hmm. um and um 
we can't put too many of them in a season because it can get a bit heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does, he does comedy so well and he does dark so well. Right. Um, sometimes yeah. in the same work. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you have a dream project for the Paul Taylor Dance Company as artistic director? Sky's the limit. No budget. What would you do? Um, do I have a dream project? You know, I'm very passionate about dance photography. Um, I wrote my senior thesis at Barnard on George Platt Lyons, who mm-hmm. was a photographer for uh, New York City Ballet. Um and dance photography is something that I really am drawn to. Um, and if there was some way that I could, you know, um, continue that passion, um, that would probably be one thing. Um, I would love to have my thesis published and like get that, you know, yeah. back from the vault. <laughs> yeah. Um, but dance photography is something that is definitely that's on my mind whether it's personal or professional but it's something that i do care about greatly sounds wonderful well thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us we had a great time visiting with you and getting to know more about all the exciting things you have coming up and next time i hope that i hope you'll be we'll be in person next time yeah for yes yes please number two (laughs) yeah we'll definitely have to do another one of these like you know in like a year catch up see how it's going we've had some guests on like five times so you definitely deserve a second round oh that'd be great you'll be you'll be our ambassador to (laughs) paul taylor (laughs) yes yes yes, gladly well thank you so much thank you so much Thank you for joining us this week. We are going to be off for the month of July, but when we return, we will be celebrating our 100th episode, and then we will be heading to the Vail Dance Festival for our second year. In Vail, we will be conducting six live ticketed events, teaching masterclasses, and recording episodes with some of your favorite dancers. For more information, visit conversationsondancepod.com and click Upcoming Events. See you next time on Conversations on Dance. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.